Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, a podcast for visionary builders, creators, and thinkers to discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. Let's dive in. You know, P.O. asked him, how long have you been in, in crypto? And he said, you know, 23 years. And he said, well, no, no, crypto's only been around for 13 years. He's like, yeah. But I was around 10 years before that building essentially a crypto industry inside World of Warcraft. I'm like, wow. You know what? The first virtual currencies in video games were a form of, of crypto. They were a digital asset that could be exchanged for value. And he said, so it was so natural. As soon as uh, in 2009 showed up, I, I was in because I've been working on it since 1999. Now, not many of us had that, that opportunity to, to see it that way. And, and it's one thing about investing that I, that I think is kind of fun is anything that's labeled a fad or anything that will rot your brain, you should invest a lot of money. On Deck is where ambitious people worldwide go to start companies, find their next roles, and invest in their careers. The Deep End invites the founders, operators, and investors from the On Deck community and beyond to turn their experiences into the ideas others need to start their own odysseys. Joining me this week in the Deep End is Mark Yesko. Mark is the founder, chief investment officer, and managing director of Morgan Creek Capital Management an investment management firm that advises pension funds, endowments, and wealthy individuals. Today's episode is far-ranging. We chat about network effects, virtual stages, legacy events like the Olympics, Disney, decentralized creative franchises, and much, much more. The one thread that ties everything together? Technology becomes mainstream only after being a fad or lying on the mainstream. A quick reminder that nothing you hear in today's episode, or any other episode of The Deep End for that matter, could be considered investment advice. All right, time for the episode of Mark. Let's dive in. Mark Yusko, welcome to the deep end. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited and uh, look forward to the conversation, Marshall. Yeah, I really recommend that folks listen to my on-deck colleague, Will Jarvis's episode of Mark for context on this conversation. We don't have to do the whole thing where we recite your exact resume, you spent time right. in endowments, you've been investing. But I did have a really specific question about the endowment perspective because you have an interesting background considering your presence in the crypto space, which is that if you talk to a lot of folks in the crypto space, they say crypto, Bitcoin, it destroys legacy institutions. It's yeah. challenging the status quo. The higher education system, I'd say, is probably the definition of the status quo. But as you saw through your role leading endowments at institutions of higher education, public and private, they've done pretty well with yeah, yeah. investing, all these different bits. So can you speak to the tension between incumbents new technologies, new investment strategies? Let's start there. No, it's a really important question. Look, incumbency is a curse, right? Because you're, you're always going to be the target. And, you know, technology accelerates the pace 
of change. And that, that can you know, go back to the beginning of time with things like the printing press or electricity or, or heck, the plow, right? Uh, so lots of things uh, disrupted the incumbents. And higher education is clearly an incumbent. One of the reasons they have been able to grow and uh, become more diverse in, in how they approach their mandate is because they've done a good job one harvesting, stay on the plow theory, uh, example, uh, analogy, uh, they've harvested the gains from their production, right? They sowed the seeds of, of future leaders. Those leaders become successful. They give back and they create this endowment. And an endowment is an incredible tool. It's an incredible citadel in the sense that if you invest it wisely, it becomes this impenetrable fortress that allows you to then reinvest in the future. And it allows you to disrupt yourself. It allows you to uh, innovate. Now, whether they've innovated enough and whether you know things like Khan Academy aren't still going to come and eat their lunch, well, we'll see. Um, but but I think they they use those endowments if they invest them well. You know the endowments that don't invest them well. You know there's great examples of endowments that stayed too conservative and left all the money in cash and bonds, and then they got passed in the ranks. Uh, by schools like Duke and, and Carolina and Notre Dame and, and others who, who have put up these, you know, lightning-like numbers and, and surged in, in their ability to, to grow and, and innovate. So the endowment part of my life really taught me about the benefits of permanent capital. Right? Permanent capital is an amazing gift uh, in the sense that, you know, all of us, have finite lives, you know, working on biotech to try to change that. But we all have finite lives and therefore we're going to need our capital at some point. Endowments live forever. And in theory, these institutions could live forever, should live forever. But you're right. Disruption is is definitely on the way in higher ed. Let's actually talk about that then, which is in your episode of Will, you spoke about how you first got bit by the crypto bug in 2013, but it took you a little longer. It was this funny anecdote you gave of you and the Winklevi twins, obviously we discovered at the same time. Um, one set of twins there is, is let's just say, doing very, very, very well. You're doing well, but not quite. Oh, no, no, look, they're they're multi-billionaires well. and I'm not. And <laughs> and I'm not complaining. I, you know, no one's crying for me. I'm I'm perfectly happy. But you know, they uh they embraced the idea. Now, did they embrace it because of, of you know, being brilliant? Sure. Did they, or was there a little bit of a serendipity and, and luck, right? You know, I didn't happen to be hanging out in Ibiza uh, with some of the early, early guys in Bitcoin. Uh, and honestly, and I've said this, I, I jokingly say it, but it's true, right? You know, in 2013, I was not running drugs on Silk Road. And that actually was an interesting entry point into crypto. And that is true really of all big tech innovations in history. They start on the fringe. You know, you think about the first pagers, drug dealers, first users of the internet, porn. Um, and why is that? Well, it's because those fringe industries are basically banned from traditional resources. You, know, you can't use banking, you can't use finance, you can't use normal lawyers. You know, and in fact, you go all the way back biblical, right? The money changers. I mean, money was was kind of dicey in the early days. 
and you know they shunned a certain class of people who then rose up to to control most of money and finance and banking uh, over years and years and generations. So the fringe is where that innovation really starts, and and I'm not saying that that everybody that goes to Ibiza is, is running drugs on Silk Road, but there were some people who got exposure to the assets uh, through, let's say, recreational uses, and and they were able to embrace it, not because they were running drugs on Silk Road, but because they they got it right. They they saw the power. You know, one of my favorite points on that, not drug related, but uh, <laughs> kind of fringe related, is video games. And I did a, a fireside chat with Brock Pierce, and you know, Pio asked him, you know, "How long have you been in, in crypto?" And he said, "You know, twenty three years." And we said, "Well, no, no, crypto's only been around for thirteen years." Like, yeah, but I was around ten years before that, building essentially a crypto industry inside World of Warcraft. I'm like, wow, you know what? The first virtual currencies in video games were a form of, of crypto. They were a digital asset that could be exchanged for value. And he said, so it was so natural. As soon as uh, you know, 2009 showed up, I, I was in because I've been working on it since 1999. Now, not many of us had that, that opportunity to, to see it that way. And, and it's one thing about investing that I, that I think is kind of fun is anything that's labeled a fad or anything that will rot your brain, you should invest a lot of money in, right? Whether it's video games, whether it's you know leisure activities or, or social media, anything that the incumbents label as as things that will rot your brain, you should you should pick it up with both hands. We're gonna jump a couple different places in a particular order, especially based on what you just said there. I'm thinking back to my childhood. My parents told me that Pokemon cards were a fad. On a certain time scale, some things that was a fad. Now there's the whole debate about whether Pokemon cards have value today. But how do we differentiate between fad as a incumbency protection device, as you articulated? And no, like actually there is no value in garbage pail kids back in the 80s. What's the differentiation between those two things, you think? Um, technology, right? In the sense that, look, a, a Pokemon card or a garbage pail kid or a cabbage patch kid or, or whatever it is, pet rock, uh, they have value to owners because they're relatively scarce. Now, the problem with like a pet rock, well, it really isn't scarce, right? You can create as many pet rocks as you want. And so ultimately, the number of people that that wanted to have a novelty of a pet rock wore off because there, there was no scarcity. Or Cabbage Patch Kids, your Garbage Pail Kid, right? They, they, they aren't scarce. Now, one of the things that Pokemon has done, and look, Pokemon's been around decades, and you know people are still playing. I played with my son all weekend on uh, Legends of Arceus, and not the trading card game, but the, but the video game. And when I could get him off Fortnite, because he spends a lot of time on Fortnite too. But um, the interesting thing is they did create scarcity, right? They have things in the game that are truly scarce, right? I mean, and it's a it's a forced scarcity as opposed to a 
happenstance scarcity. Like, you know, the Lou Gehrig card, baseball card that sold for whatever it was, $5 million, or maybe it was Babe Ruth, it doesn't really matter, but one of those two. The reason is because there's only, as far as people know, one left, right? There were hundreds or thousands, I don't know how many there were originally, and they got thrown away or stolen or ruined or whatever. And the ones that survive then become valuable because they're scarce. Um, but with code, you can change that. Like collectible Porsches are the best performing asset over the last decade. It's not Bitcoin. It's not Ethereum. It's not some you know altcoin. It's actually collectible Porsches. Why? Well, because of what's called the dentist wrap phenomenon. It's not charitable to the dentist, but dentist makes the money, buys a Porsche, doesn't know how to drive it, takes it out, wraps it around a, a telephone pole, end of said Porsche. So the ones that don't get wrecked become collectible. And then there are three guys, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno, and this guy, John Shirley, who was the number three guy at, at Microsoft, who basically bid whatever it takes to buy up these collectible Porsches, one of a kind uh, assets, and put them in a garage and buff them with a cloth, which I would say is kind of sad because share them with the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And now with virtual museums and stuff, I think they will, but uh, or NFTs. But ultimately, that's real scarcity. But in the virtual world with code, we actually can create scarce assets, whether it is digital trading cards or NFTs, you know, non-fungible tokens, digital property rights, uh, or Bitcoin itself, right? Which has a finite supply uh, hard-coded into the algorithm. So scarcity is what drives long-term value. Think about your house, right? House should not appreciate. Houses wear out, right? If you did nothing to your house over decades, it would actually fall down, right? I mean, it would literally wear out and yeah. fall down. And so they shouldn't go up in value. Well, what goes up in value? The land that it sits on, because there's only so much land that is close to amenities or on a waterfront or you know near uh, all the good schools or whatever it is. So the scarcity is the land. But ultimately, what it really is, is not even that that's appreciating. It's that the currency we, we value it in is devaluing because we print more of it. So for the same reason that a Cabbage Patch Kid or a Pet Rock became less valued or Beanie Babies became less valued, is they weren't scarce. Just like dollars. Dollars are not scarce. We printed 50% of all the dollars in the history of the Republic, which is 255 years in the last two years. That's insane. So it's not surprising that the value of things appears to be rising, but it's really just that we denominate it in a devaluing asset, the dollar. Something I'm curious about, and this goes back to the video game example and how video games aren't fringe, but let's just say there can be sequestered spaces where innovation could happen. Like you said, World of Warcraft, not fringe, but it's a sequestered off community crypto development. Well, it's fringe in the sense that for the mainstream person, you ask the average person, you know, who are the characters of World of Warcraft? Most, other than males between a certain age, few females, but mostly males, couldn't tell you, right? My parents wouldn't even know what World of Warcraft is. <laughs> I, yeah. I know what it is, but I never played it. And my son-in-law played it a lot, like a lot, a lot. So you ask people between you know, 28 and, and 38, they definitely know World of Warcraft, uh, just like my 11-year-old knows everything about Pokemon. So to that example, then, what do you think, and maybe this is me just observing a narrative on Twitter, so check me if this is incorrect, what explains 
the degree of hostility there seems to be from video game communities to crypto centric discussions. Ah, great. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a great question because I, I don't really understand it in the sense that it, it should be, um, they should be the digital natives that really get it, right? They should be the Brock Pierce's of the world that, that, that understand it. And I, and I think there are, right? I think there are plenty of people who played video games and, and immediately got it. You know, one of my favorite stories is the reason uh, Tim Draper is, a, again, a multi-billionaire because of Bitcoin. I mean, he's a multi-billionaire for other reasons because he's a great venture capital. He was the first investor in Hotmail and first investor in a bunch of other tech companies and built a, an empire, Draper Fisher Jurvetson. But Tim uh, had a client from South Korea who was visiting and he said, you know, I want to tell you the story. So my son the other day came home and said, dad, I need 40 bucks. He said, for what? He says, I want to buy a sword. He's like, your mom is not going to let you have a sword. Are you kidding? He says, no, no, dad, not a real sword. A sword for my game. He says, I'm not giving you $40 or, you know, I guess it was Korean won. I'm not giving you $40, $40 to, to buy a sword. And Tim went, wait a second. He wants real money to convert into a virtual currency to buy a good in a metaverse. Uh, term hadn't even been coined yet. Uh, so yeah, that's interesting. So he did a little work. And again, if, if you do the work, you can't help but become wildly enthusiastic about crypto. Right? If you don't do any work, it's easy to be skeptical. I was skeptical at first. I hadn't done any work. Now that I've done the work, spend all my time in it. Because uh, I think it's the greatest wealth creation opportunity I'll see in my lifetime. But once you do the work, he did a little work and he said, all right. Uh, at the time, they had just seized the Bitcoin from uh, Silk Road and the FBI was auctioning it off. And I don't know, price was some crazy number, like six bucks or something. And everyone was bidding $3, $3.50. Tim's like, $6 and one cent. I want it all. And he bought you know 200,000 Bitcoin for you know, a fraction of, of its value uh, today. So that was all because of understanding this idea of gaming. So it, it's illogical to me that there is this cohort of, of gamers who, like I say, are openly hostile to the ideas of crypto. And I, I guess it's because maybe they view it as each system should have their own separate, you know, mana, uh, whatever that is. Uh, or, or token. Um, but really, I would think they would be the ones that would immediately embrace network effects and digital assets and scarcity because they've, they've lived it. You know, it's interesting. This gets to the tension between incumbents and new players, though, because from my perception, it seems to be a lot of the hostility comes from this idea that crypto implementation in games is very top down. So it's active, it's Activision, it's Blizzard, when the energy that you're describing is very bottom up. So you're kind of meeting in this weird in-between spot. Oh, Marshall, that's such a great point. No, no, it's it's such a great point. It's it's the whole reason that it took so damn long for Bitcoin in particular, but but digital assets broadly to, to catch on, right? The Crypto Anarchist Manifesto was written in 1988. Tim May, God rest his soul, Tim May wrote, and it's brilliant, and it's not that long, and he predicted everything that was going to happen over the last 30 years. I mean, everything. 
And no one read it. No one paid attention to it. No one did anything about it for 20 years. Why? Because he was an anarchist and he was a hermit. And he sat up in the mountain with his guns and his ammo and his butter. And and I, I mean, I'm, I'm just making that stuff up, but I, 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 mean, I don't know what he did personally, but he was, he was an anarchist. And anarchists, right, they don't have a lot of friends. They're loners and they don't, they don't spread the gospel. And so it wasn't until Satoshi Nakamoto came along, again, whoever he, she, they are, I guess self-identified he in one email. Um, so maybe it's a he. I actually think it's a group of people. But uh, when Satoshi came along and created something that wasn't about the libertarian, anarchist, you know, screw the man, and became more about inclusiveness and a global monetary system and a peer-to-peer network that it exploded. And, and we are where we are today. So to me, this idea of you know, stick it to the man, Neotius, uh, is, is crazy. You know, it's like from my movie, one of my favorite movies, you know, School of Rock. Um, people say, you like that movie? I'm like, of course I like that. How can you not like Jack Black? So uh, being mad that, you know, Microsoft is a powerful company uh, or Activision is a powerful company or EA is a powerful company just seems silly, right? If you want to create something better, then innovate. And I think we're seeing that in things like Play to Earn and Axie. Look, Pokemon is controlled by Niantic. And I hate the fact that, you know, all the money that I spend for myself and my son on Pokemon Go goes to this one centralized organization and they're owned by venture capitalists and others. Why isn't it owned up by us, right? Why isn't it a DAO where we, the players, own a piece of the business? That's coming. Now, Niantic will go public and it'll be a wild success just like Epic Games for Fortnite will go public. and But their days are numbered in the sense of centralized systems owning these gaming networks because what's going to happen is the networks themselves, like, like the Loot Project, right? Where it's self-organized around the items in a game. Now, whether they'll get the same level of development and create the, you know, the elegance of, you know, the the... Uh, what it's called, the render engine in Fortnite is truly spectacular, right? It is a spectacular game. And they spent, you know, tens and tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars in developing it to, to make it spectacular. And the fact that the genius, I think, of them is they pulled all the pop culture in, right? All the skins like Ariana Grande and The Rock, and then they have the story and, and, it, it's genius, absolute genius. But it doesn't mean that you won't see a decentralized version of it in the future. I think you will. And I think Axie did that to Niantic in a way. Now, it's not quite as good and it's not quite... I mean, the new Pokemon game, Arceus, is awesome, right? It's like, you know, like Breath of the Wild, good um, in terms of the render engine is amazing. It's not as good as Fortnite's, but it's pretty close. It's, it's funny. I was thinking this last night. I was watching this one animation uh, of a Pokemon making a, a fire move. And it literally looked like a video of fire, not like cartoon fire, but like literally 3D fire out of like you'd see someone with one of those, uh, you know, uh, Elon's blow uh, flame flamethrowers. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's really good. And that quality will keep their edge for a while, but eventually the decentralized quality uh, will catch up. You know, something 
I'm curious about as we're going down this rabbit hole is what do you think about intellectual property? Because if we're thinking about centralization yeah. versus decentralized, this the thing the centralized properties do, and this isn't just a crypto thing, this is Walt Disney, Marvel, all these types of things, like having this 50, 60, 80 year old IP seems to just be this, it's huge that Fortnite can do a Star Wars related event when um, The Last Jedi comes out. Um, yeah. That's an advantage that decentralized players won't have. So this is what out of your real house for me, but how do you think decentralized players can make stories that will matter to people? Oh God, it's, it's Marsha. This, this is the question. And it's, you know, we're actually investing in companies all around this in the sense that take Decentraland versus uh, Disney versus Fortnite Town Square. And I think I have this number right. As I understand it, the Fortnite Travis Scott concert had 200 million watchers, users. It's incredible. Like, and the first time I heard that number, I was like, that's bullshit. No way. And <laughs> it's then, like fake YouTube metrics. Yeah, you know? it's like fake. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like, and then I checked into it. It's like, no, they really did. And, and it makes sense because they have orders of magnitude more than that players. And I actually went in. Now, I'm not a Fortnite player, but I, there was a way somehow that you could go in and, and watch. And, and I did, right? Because I was interested in it. I think there was a, a link on, on Twitter. And think about that. Think about the biggest sporting events in the world, right? The Indy 500 gets 400,000 people, right? The Super Bowl will be watched on television by 100 million people. This was twice that big. And so the town square inside Fortnite is an amazingly valuable asset, right? Amazingly valuable. Is the Disney Magic Kingdom equally valuable as a destination? Like if the, if Disney had a metaverse version of Magic Kingdom and you walk down Main Street and they set up a stage, how many people would go watch Ariana Grande perform on Disney's stage at the Magic Kingdom? A billion, maybe. Two billion. I mean, how many kids? No Disney, more than no Fortnite, I think. And so versus Decentraland that would like to create a stage that they want people to buy and then they want people to build and, 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 and do shows. Okay, that, that might be good. But the problem for me with digital land is it's not truly scarce. Now, because it's, it's, there's no physical proximity. Like center city, New York City, there, is only, there are only so many blocks. Mm -hmm. And so if you have you know, a storefront on Fifth Avenue, you have that storefront. And if you're on Sixth Avenue, it's not as good. Or Seventh Avenue, not as good. Um, here, I think it's different, right? If I'm going to a site on my computer and I go to Decentraland slash, you know, center, you know, whatever, main stage. Okay, fine. But how do I know I'm going to slash main stage versus slash, 
you know, main stage two or main stage three or main stage four? How many of those will get created? And will I have the same loyalty to that slash as I do to a brand from the physical world? And that's why to me, the metaverse is not like just a place. It's like this intersection of the digital world and your physical world. And I think those overlaps will never be full, but they'll just always, there'll always be a physical, I think. Uh, and that's where we all end up like those, those, those <laughs> ugly characters in WALL-E, you know, sitting on our floating lounge chair with our big gulp watching the screen weighing 700 pounds, which I hope never happens, because uh, that would suck. But that's a long answer to your question, but I think it's so, it's the $100 trillion question right now. Right, is who and what entities own our mind share, collective mind share on gathering? Right? Do I want to go to a concert in MSG, in Decentraland's stage, which probably has a name, but I don't know, or this new thing that we did invest in that I don't know if it's going to work out or not, but they've created something called the Coliseum, which, okay, but... When I would hear the word Coliseum, first thing you hear, think of is Rome. Mm -hmm. Second thing I think of is LA. Third thing I think of is, is this Coliseum, you know, online, but I don't know. And, and, and can any of that overcome the incumbency effect or the network effect of, of a fortnight in their town square? I don't know. You know, it's funny um, when you're describing Disney, 1 billion, 2 billion people watching Ariana Grande. Something I was thinking about as well. Yes, but a problem Disney's going to have is that Disney is very top down. Disney is going to have very specific content requirements. This isn't just the typical content moderation debate. Like, obviously, um, those 1 billion people are going to have to watch this within a Disney brand context. And the question is going to be are these decentralized competitors going to have an advantage in that they will not be? as top down. They're not going to be as scripted as a Marvel movie. They're not going to have this very specific thing. Like if you think about movies, right? The a complaint that directors have had with Marvel when they're and I love Marvel movies is those like Disney's like, no, like we have a script, we have tropes, we have themes, we're doing the jokey funny thing to serious ratio. Th that's just my immediate reaction, which is that if if you're again it's a it's a great insight, a really, yeah. really important insight. And and I'll give you the the, the example that, that you know in real time. So uh, went out to this conference, the Real Vision conference out in Vegas a couple months ago. And everybody, you know, was talking about board apes and how board apes is blowing up. And yeah, Timbaland talking about his ape and how he's named it Congo and how he's going to create this whole line around it. He's going to do a motion picture and he's going to do music. And, and people said, and someone said, you know, this is like Stan Lee came down and said, hey, I got a bunch of characters. Would you like to buy some? And, and I actually said that once. And then I started thinking about, it. nope, no, it's not. Nope. Because all the apes, all 10,000 of them, they're all the same. And they got little differences, but they're, they're apes. And Stan Lee's characters are all different, right? Wolverine's very different, Spider-Man, very different, Wonder Woman. And the magic was the storytelling around the characters. And look, I, I remember because I, I had the chance and I'm, I'm an idiot because I, I missed lots of things in my life, but this one I really missed. So I remember, I remember the day that Carl Icahn bought Marvel and everyone was lambasting him 
on TV. I mean, just like, oh, you're an idiot. It's comic books. They're going away. You're so stupid. And then when he sold to Disney for, I don't know, a gazillion dollars, he got the last laugh. But but I heard this other thing the other day, which is just awesome. So on the day of, of the sale to Disney, the uh, whoever the head at the time, I don't think it was Eisner, I think whoever, whoever the CEO was, called everybody, all yeah, the senior execs, and said, all right, here's the deal. If you get a call from anyone with an extension that says Marvel, stop whatever you're doing and take the call because that is your boss. And just let that sink in for a second. We're talking about a venerable brand that everybody knows and loves basically saying Marvel is bigger than you. And, you know, Carl paid six billion bucks for Marvel. They made more than six billion dollars off the last Spider-Man movie. One movie. And yeah, the Eternals, I just watched it last night, sucked. Okay. We don't I talk about the Eternals. It was, it, was, it was not really that good. It just wasn't that good. I feel like, my wife said, she says, it feels like they made a movie so that a bunch of other stars could do cameos. Like, I mean, yeah. they were cameos. They were more than cameos. But, but they were just- Harry Styles in his uh, Eternals appearance, right? Like, that's yeah. the feeling. Oh, and <laughs> Angela Jolie. I mean, okay. But it just, I don't know. It was weird. Um, whereas- you know, I was transfixed in the last Spider-Man movie. I mean, I just loved it. Thought it was, and, and the, the Spider-Verse into the multiverse was just awesome. I mean, I've watched that one probably with my son 10 times. So, but Bored Apes, I don't think, as great as it is, I don't think will ever become Marvel. And so to your point, how does the decentralized I do think the decentralized has a huge advantage of not being controlled. But here we go back to the stick it to the man Neotis thing. The man actually is pretty smart sometimes. <laughs> Creating rules, right? Kids need rules. We as humans need some boundaries. We, we like certain things. There are certain things we like. We like stories. I mean, since the, since the Greek and Roman tragedies to today, through Shakespeare, through all the great books, they're all the same. <laughs> it's like every every manual that you've ever read or every book that you ever read on on management is all just the writings of Socrates and Plato and Seneca the Younger. That's twenty six hundred years ago. So there's nothing new in this world. So there there are things that human beings like. We like you know surprises. We like stories. We like drama. We like so. So having a, a, a cookie cutter approach, you can say, oh, I don't like that. Well, kind of. And does that mean there's no room for innovation? No. And innovation will happen. But community is what wins. And this is, this is the law of, in, of increasing returns. It's not the best technology that wins. It's not the best content that wins. It's the, it's the community that gets the largest network effect first. And once it, it creates that, it is pretty unassailable. And that's kind of, I think, where we are with in, in certain areas of crypto. It's like why Bitcoin is digital gold and nothing will ever assail it. It's why Ethereum is maybe, you know, the www dot, uh, although it has some, some technical stuff that, that could be challenged by some other 
competitors, but I think the network effect is just too big. But I don't know. I I really do think um, the 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 hard known brands that are good at storytelling, and that's the key. Well, good at storytelling or good at uh, creating community through identification with with the brand, you know, like the Louis Vuitton. I mean, you think about it, why would anyone pay $1,500 for something that they could get the same utility for $50 or $20? I don't understand. Well, yeah, you do because it's part of a community. It's part of a club. You know, why would anyone join a, commu- a country club um, you know, when you can for, you know, $20,000, $30,000, $50,000, when you can go play at the municipal golf course, because you get to wear the logo on your shirt and say you're part of the club. Why do people put their avatar with an ape or, or a, you know, another JPEG? Because I'm part of the club. And um, human beings like to be, one, we like to be part of the club. And two, we like to brag, right? We like to say, I'm successful. I can afford to do this. Um, that's a long rambling answer, but I think it's a really important question. No, and it's given me some useful bits here because community is obviously the buzzword of, well, there's 15 different buzzwords at the moment, but this is one of the principal buzzwords. I'm sure yeah. you've seen this on 15 different decks um, from a pitch perspective, but let's actually dive a bit into the Louis Vuitton example you gave because I would, because this is a problem that, you're ha- that, that a lot of crypto folks, NFTs, DAOs are basically running into, which is that because of the financialization aspect of this, I feel as if people are conflating spending money, buying into a brand with a community thing. Because for example, streetwear, like think of Supreme in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, that isn't just a, it's expensive. There's a brand there, but there actually, there are values, there are practices. I don't think Louis Vuitton, and maybe this is me being in my late 20s and not being in the target market on a couple of different levels, I don't get the sense that Louis Vuitton has the same level of legitimate values-based, identity-based community as uh, a Supreme would have. So moving forward, how do you really differentiate between communities that are actual communities and Things that operationally are just badges. I would think of the Louis Vuitton logo mm-hmm. as being a badge. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wearing an Oregon sweatshirt, um, mm-hmm. University of Oregon. I went yeah. there. So yes, this is a badge, but it's also a community I'm a member of. How do we differentiate, especially yeah, as an investor? Yeah, fantastic insight. Now I got my fighting Irish on, on the wall. So I'm a member of that community. It is certainly a badge, right? We went to good colleges, quote unquote, that makes us good people. Maybe at least we got an education back to our whole thing about higher education, having some value. But in many cases, right, what you get at at a college today, well, particularly today, maybe not 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but absolutely today, you could get 90 plus percent of it online. Right. In fact, I'll argue you'd get better quality because I took freshman chemistry from a very perfectly good chemistry professor but I didn't take it from the best chemistry professor in the world, which I could do online, right? And the fact that anyone anywhere sits through a freshman chemistry lecture with anything but the best chemistry professor in the world makes no sense to me, right? Having it up on a video with the best professor in the world versus some grad student or or some junior faculty member doesn't make any sense. But 
I think your point is really well taken on badges versus communities. Now, I think there are some new age things that that think of themselves as community, but they're brad they're badges too, right? And and they talk a good game on you know social responsibility or you know some other element of community building. But at the end of the day, it's still just a badge. I, I think interestingly on Louis Vuitton, for the boomer cohort, not just boomers, boomers all the way down to probably millennials, but but maybe not Gen Zs, there is and still is an inclusion desire for people to be part of that. And and that I think has to do with lots of, of different things. But and it's interesting because it gets passed down from generation to generation. So while I want to say it's a boomer thing. I know plenty of my boomer friends whose kids are equally addicted to the Louis Vuitton or the Colhan or the other luxury brands because that's what they saw their parents do. And so that's what they do. And and that's how I think it gets perpetuated and it's been going on for centuries. Uh, It's not like Louis Vuitton is a new brand and it didn't die off with every new generation for whatever reason. So real, but I, I think it's an interesting point. Is it, a, is, it, is it just a badge or is, it, is there a community element? And how do, you, how do you, I mean, what's the line? What's the trigger where you go from just badge and membership to actual community? I mean, community connotes yeah. a higher and better purpose, right? that you're coming together for some purpose. Um, but what if that purpose is simply be like me and feel good and 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 look good and and we all tell each other how great we are? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's funny, and this takes it to the Bitcoin part here, which is that Bitcoin has value. As I, I think when, if, if you, when you tell me that you were first bit by the bit crypto bug in 2013, that conveys a very specific set of ideas to me. I, not that I, I don't know you, but I yeah. understand some very specific things about you in 2013. If you'd said you got into it in 2008, that would also tell me an even more escalated version of that. Um, yep. So I think that Bitcoin has actually done a great job of operationally, it's a badge. There's mm-hmm. a hugely financialized aspect of this, but it's much more complicated than that. Um, but total tangent pivot here, but a theme here that we've been addressing here is this divide between URL and IRL. Um, and you're really into sports. Um, Tom White from Ondex suggests we talk about sports for a bit. So I found a way to, to nudge this here. Love We're it. talking about how 200 million people are watching a metaverse-based concert performance. There's a world where you could see billions of people watching uh, in that type of space. At the same time, you have things like, you know, Formula One really blowing up. Netflix is helping there. Also, but no one's watching the Olympics this week. And that's an interesting case where talk about a legacy brand, right? Like this is a, this is a like 2,500 year, um, one of the longest legacy brands yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yet no one's really watching. So how do we sort through all of these weird feelings around what people are interested in? where brands are screwing up and where the opportunity is? Again, really, that's <laughs> a great question. So, and it, and it goes to 
the question of whether uh, something has inherent value or whether it is um, an operant conditioning, right? That, that you do something because you saw other people do it. Like, you know, I watched the Olympics because that's what we did growing up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we literally sat down around the TV trays and my parents turned on the, and, and you wouldn't miss it. And, 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 and I'm going to posit something here and I'm making this up in real time, uh, like most things in my life, but, uh, it's interesting. The question to me is, did we sit around and watch the Olympics growing up because we were so interested in biathlon and cross country skiing or, you know, downhill or, or whatever, or because we were controlled, and I mean that word intentionally, by ABC, NBC, CBS, right? That, that you know, the wide world of sports, you know, jingle was like operant conditioning to when you heard, you know, the, the Olympic uh, music, you, oh, okay, I got to watch that. You know, it's, it's, it's like, a, like a trigger. Or is it, you know, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat? Do we really just as human beings love to see winners win and losers lose, right? You know, we watch car crashes and fires and natural disasters. And, you know, it's just, I think, human nature. Um, but, you know, was it like, did we all watch the Miracle on Ice because we loved hockey? or because we love the underdog story, back to stories, right? Underdog stories always work, no matter what genre, book, movie, radio, television, you know, internet, underdog stories works every time. You know, football, you know, you always want to watch the, the team that has no chance. You know, who, who wasn't rooting for Cincinnati this year? Mm-hmm. Tell me who wasn't rooting for Cincinnati this year. No one don't have any loyalty to Cincinnati. You don't even know if they play by the rules, right? But you just didn't want the other, you know, you didn't want Goliath to win again. So I think the Olympics is, is a really tough one for me because I, in the olden days, which is not that old, but, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, when our eyeballs were controlled by the big networks, they pushed that and that was your only choice right there you know there weren't 500 channels with nothing on there were a handful of channels and the olympics were on and they were on all the channels and so you watched the olympics and then you kind of got into some stories right who i mean you're too young but franz klammer doing the downhill and winning the down i'll never forget that i mean i could i could recite almost every turn he made because it was unbelievable spectacle and, you know, unfortunately, Michaela fell yesterday. And, um, you know, so we don't get to watch her, you know, win again. Um, but I, I think now people's eyeballs are so diverted and there's no one promoting the Olympics on Twitter, as far as I can tell. There's no one promoting the Olympics on TikTok. There's no one promoting the Olympics on Instagram. And so maybe you see pictures of people at the Olympics um, on Instagram. But I don't think that's going to motivate you to go watch the Olympics. 
And it's not like they're trying to make it interactive. I saw something on one of the apps was trying to make it a little more interactive so you could, you know, talk to your TV and pull up. I think Xfinity was doing this where you can pull up stats and stuff, but that's still stats. People actually want to play, right? They want to interact. They want to be in Fortnite. They want to create their, their environment. They want to be in the community that they choose to be in as opposed to just passively consume. Um, but I, I don't know. I think part of it is the way we're conditioned and, and force-fed stuff, whereas now instead of three squares a day and dessert, it's snack, you know, snacks all the time. I mean, just everywhere you go, there's content and you got to choose what you're going to consume. And so if there was a great story in the Olympics, right? If there was some, you know, great team, underdog team, I'd, I'd probably, yeah, we would all rally around that. You know, if Eddie the Eagle was mm. back, right? The guy from England who was gonna, you know, win the, the downhill, you know, ski jumping. Uh, yeah, we'd all watch. But I watched ski jumping last night and I mean, watched with one eye. Literally while I was playing Pokemon with my son. And, and I didn't really watch it because there just wasn't anybody I cared about, right? The Norwegians were all the Vikings and no, no personality. And there wasn't, there wasn't anyone from the US that I could rally around because our guy didn't do very well. And, and there, was, there just wasn't any story. And I don't know, it's a long answer, but I, I think it's a really important one as we think about um, content creation going forward is who would believe, this, this is an amazing stat, who would believe that this year more people will watch esports, will watch other people play video games than any other league except the NFL, more than the NBA, more than the NHL, more than tennis, more than golf, more than hockey. Only the NFL will have more watchers, and it's only because of the Super Bowl, than esports. Who believed that? That's interesting. It's the, the way you set this up with the ABC, NBC, CBS thing is it's, it's such a useful example because the point is that the internet and just the real diffusion of con of content has just made it so that the bar is just so much greater. And this applies to a million different industries. So if you're in the record industry, like was it really great paying $20 for three songs you do like, and then 18 songs yep. you don't like. Yep. Obviously that um, wasn't quite true here. So once again, like this bar has just risen. So this that, last- Marshall, yeah, and, and I love your term diffusion of content. I'm gonna borrow it. That should be a hashtag. Um, but but the thing that, that does bug me a little bit is we've moved away from personal discovery. Mm -hmm. Some of my favorite songs are songs that were on a B-side of an album, like the first Boston album. There are songs on the second side that most people have never heard that I still think rock. I mean, just absolutely rock. Because I actually listened to them because I had the album and I flipped it over and I played both sides. And, and now it's, oh, the top song is trending. Okay, that must be good. Everyone likes it, so I should like it. I don't like that at all. Right? I don't want to like it because other people like it. I don't, I don't want you to feed it to me because other people liked it. 
I want to discover stuff. I want to, I mean, some of my favorite music, it's interesting, some of my favorite music is from Pandora because I go to a channel and it feeds me one song from the artist that I asked for, but then three that it thinks, the algos think, and this is based on what other people think, but I'm hearing it for the first time. And I'm not, and I'm not thinking about, oh, I'm only hearing it because other people liked it. I don't care. If I, if I hear it and I like it, it's awesome. And if you would have told me I was going to, I don't even know the name of the band, Walk the Moon maybe? If, if I was going to listen to music by Walk the Moon, I would have said, what are you joking? <laughs> Some of their stuff is, is awesome. The way you just explained that also, I thought back to um, – Favorite album I ever bought was Dude Ranch by Blink-182. And it's like, you know, it's it's pretty much like towards their, you know, their their glory days. But I just bought it randomly. Um, and some, like you said, like some of my favorite songs, like track number 12 is this random like Star Wars Phantom Menace um, Princess Leia thing. And I really like that. I never would have found that in today's era. So it seems to be you were giving a good pitch for why, you know, vinyl album sales have actually just exploded this year. Because the, the funny thing is that, you know, as much as we're saying – crypto, the internet changes everything. It also unlocks opportunities and dynamics that are actually great, which is sometimes that discovery bit is is, is really helpful here. So I, I want to just basically close with this question, which is you referred to Bitcoin crypto as the greatest wealth creation opportunity of your lifetime. Yep. That obviously includes your lifetime, the the real creation, adoption of the consumer internet um, in yep. the early to mid nineties. So I would just love for you to actually tell a quick story of, or as long as you want to go, how you reacted to the consumer internet when it first came out and then why now oh. no, look, at this it, it, point, does, does crypto feel bigger than yeah, that no, as you seem to be implying? It's simple exponential math based on technological evolution. And, and what I mean by that, exponential math is hard, right? The average person can't do it. I use the simple example all the time. If I take 20 linear steps across the office, I'm at the other side of the office. If I take 20 exponential steps, I go around the world twice. People are like, no, that's bullshit. I'm like, do the math. And you know, it's like folding a piece of paper, right? You literally can't fold a piece of paper eight times. I defy anyone who's watching this, try, take a piece of paper, right? take a piece of paper and try to fold it eight times. You won't be able to. But if you could fold it 20 times, it'd be the height of your house. If you could fold it 30 times, it's the upper atmosphere. 50 times you're at the sun and 100 times it's the known universe. 100 doublings is the known universe. So exponential math is really big, but the more important point is how technology builds on itself. It's like Newton said, I stand on the shoulder of giants. He says, I'm not that genius. I'm just standing on the shoulders of giants. And I, I just got lucky, right? I mean, I have lived, I mean, I was born in 63 and, and this starts in 54, but my dad was involved in the first stage. So from 54 to today is basically the period of computing and technology. 54 is the mainframe. 68 was the microchip, 82 was the personal computer, 96 was the internet, 2010 was the mobile net, and 2024 is the trust net, as I call it, or the internet of value. And so my dad bought in 
uh, are sold and installed uh, IBM mainframes, you know, invented in the late 50s in the late 50s. And then there's this innovation in Silicon Valley in 68 around the microchip, and suddenly Silicon Valley became the center of the universe. I grew up in Seattle. I joke, many of my friends don't have to work because they went to work for the little company called Microsoft. Again, too stupid to do that. Uh, I always defend myself saying, Google the picture of the original Microsoft 11. You would not blame me. They were pretty rough looking. Now, they're all multi-billionaires. Again, more multi-billionaires than I'm not, but they were rough looking. We we're all rough looking in the 70s, but they were more rough looking. <laughs> so uh, fast forward to 96. I'm back at the alma mater. I'm at Notre Dame. We invest half a million dollars in this little company called Google, turns into 200. And that's when the light bulb went on. That's when this idea of the consumer internet hit. Because if you go back to 2000, so 96 to 2000, we invested in, in a bunch of companies from you know, Intel to Microsoft, to Cisco, to Sienna, to Sycamore. I mean, all kinds of amazing businesses, Sienna. And if you think about that period of time, that was web one, right? As we we're getting connected. So 54 mainframes, microcomputers, personal computers, still not connected, finally starting to get some connectivity around client server technology. And that was web one. And think of it as, as a parabolic curve, right? X-axis, here I'll go X-axis, and then the knee of the curve, and then Y-axis. Um, the first part, the first third is web 1.0. And that was a lot of wealth, right? Microsoft, Intel, Cisco pales in comparison to what we're going to experience in the future, but a lot of wealth. And that was the beginning of the, of the, the consumer internet, but it was a horrible experience. The AOL dial-up modems, you know, Netflix, right? Netflix almost died twice. Because in the early days, they had these discs, right? CDs, and they send them to you and they would break and they'd get lost. And then they tried video on demand. But on demand meant four days. You had to wait four days to download a movie. No one would wait four days. Pets.com, awesome idea, zero. Poster child for the failure of the internet. It's the same company as Chewy.com, exact same company. But Chewy's worth $30 billion. Home grocer. Okay. That's my personal favorite. Yeah. Or, or yeah. Yeah. And Webvan versus, you know, Uber Eats. So, but it was too early because we didn't have broadband. We didn't have enough connectivity. We didn't have speed. And so we needed the innovation of the mobile net, right? We needed the smartphone in our hand, the supercomputer in our hand. But when, when this was introduced in 2007, Apple stock went down 40%. Because people are like, no one's ever going to pay $500 for a phone. Are you kidding me? No, they'll pay $1,500 because it's a computer. It's not a phone. And all of that connectivity was standing on the shoulders of giants. So we went from web one to web two, which is the mobile net. And that is companies like Amazon and Alibaba and Netflix and Apple. Amazon, I mean, Amazon is not a company, right? They're a network. They're a search engine that matches buyers and sellers and takes a cut. They don't make stuff. They're not a company, the way we think about companies. They don't make widgets. And I guess they make some knockoff stuff and sell it, but they're a search engine. And so if we think about Web 2, that was more wealth, right? The area under the curve between the x-axis and the curve is now bigger, okay? I lived through that. And we went from client server, horrible technology, to connected devices and the web and the internet. But look, when I, I was one of the first people to get an email address because I worked at a university. Three weeks, I waited 
because I was so afraid of what might happen and who was going to hack me and how do I even make this work? And and then I remember the first time I went to put my my credit card in the internet. I'm like, oh, it's going to get stolen. Well, no. You know how it gets stolen? We give it to the dry cleaner. And by the time we get home, she's ordered 700 bucks from Victoria's Secret. That's how it gets stolen. So it's actually encrypted if you put it on the internet. It's actually much safer. Now, the, the company can still get hacked. So now, it's a long answer, but Web3 is so much bigger because we're not building on crappy client-server technology. We're not building on the early stages of the internet. We're building on the mobile net where everyone is connected. And we're building on this lightning-fast system that allows us to now take advantage of the transition from TCP, TCP IP, FTP, HTTP, SMTP, www. the five main protocols of the internet, to the blockchain era, where we'll have Bitcoin, Filecoin, maybe Ethereum is www. and maybe it's Solana or Avalanche or whoever. Uh, I don't know who's going to win. Um, but those protocols are different in that they facilitate a much greater inclusion because we're building on better technology. So as you build on, I mean, think about cars, right? Formula One. The idea that a car can go 260 miles an hour down the straightaway, unthinkable 100 years ago. Unthinkable, right? Unimaginable. But now it happens. And the idea, you know, so well, where are the flying cars? Eh, I don't know if we'll ever have flying cars. Maybe, maybe not. But we're definitely going to have bigger, better, faster, stronger, more efficient, uh, you know, Airplanes. Who would have thought supersonic travel was possible 100 years ago, right? There was a quote. I love this quote. Uh, right before, two months before the Wright brothers flew, the New York Times said, well, if you do math on the evolution of birds from dinosaurs, in 10,000 years, maybe man will be able to fly. And two <laughs> months later, Kitty Hawk happened. And so now they're starting a new supersonic company down the street in Greensboro, North Carolina to bring back supersonic air travel. It's cool stuff. So the point on, on why is this the biggest opportunity I'm ever gonna see? Because I lived through the other ones. We made lots of money, mostly for clients and for the university. Like there should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. $200 million from one investment, incredible. Um, and this is bigger, right? We're building a more inclusive, more, and inclusive, I don't mean, you know, race and religion. And I mean, just people. Participatory. Just inclusive, participatory. Like literally. <laughs> and, and I do mean it in terms of, instead of having a world governed by the, the petrodollar where we can oppress whole cultures and whole continents and whole countries, that will disappear. The, one, the inclusive nature of, of Bitcoin in particular is it's money for everyone. It doesn't matter where you live, what color your skin is, it doesn't matter anything. It's just, you can own it and it's public and immutable and unchangeable. And the biggest innovation to me, and we'll leave it on this, is Bitcoin as a use case of blockchain, right? To create digital scarcity. And that idea of digital scarcity, because let's go back to music, analog, had vinyl discs, then they became MP3s. 
I have an MP3, I send you a copy. You can listen to it, I can listen to it, we're both happy. The music industry is very unhappy. So what do they do? They shut down the hierarchy. A hierarchy means you have one CEO and one home office. So they arrest Sean Parker and blow up his server. Gone, Napster gone. Now, if you want the song and I want a song, we both have to stream it and the artist gets paid. And better, the writer gets paid because now we can actually know how many times the song's getting play, played and people can get their royalties. So that is an enhancement as we went from analog to electronic to digital. As money went from analog, physical pieces of paper, to electronic, ones and zeros, to digital blockchain, it's unfathomable how big and inclusive that can be. And as now we can create any asset digitally and every stock, every bond, every currency, every commodity, every piece of art, every collectible car, every fine wine, every business, every piece of real estate, every everything, will be tokens. And those tokens are digitally distinct, publicly recorded on an immutable ledger so that everybody knows who owns it. Again, it's unfathomable. And how big that's gonna be and how much wealth that's gonna create. Because if I have to spend less time worrying about securing my assets and thinking about how I bank and thinking about how I create, and I can spend more time creating, and I don't have to worry about my money being devalued, by a government that the money that I put, that I work hard can actually appreciate because it's digitally scarce. Now I can spend more time thinking, creating, adding value. And that is where you just blow up exponentially. Excellent place to end it. Mark, this has been honestly my favorite conversation on this show so far. So I really appreciate you joining us. Um, thank you so much. I appreciate really it. Great. It was fun. I, I, I always appreciate people who are, are prepared. And uh, it was funny. Once, one time, a friend of mine had me on a podcast said, you know, secret to a great podcast is invite great guests and shut up. I'm like, nope, nope. What makes a great podcast is someone who invites good guests. You know, you want to get good guests. But mostly important, you do your research. You ask some good questions. You actually listen to the answers, but then ask better follow-up questions. Because that's what's get conversation going. And conversation Dialogue and debate in search of truth is what everything's supposed to be about. Very well so said. I appreciate it. Great present. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.